Hello and welcome to another episode of Farmerama. This month, we begin by looking at the links between regenerative agriculture and climate change. Then, we take a walk on a Scottish beach with a seaweed entrepreneur, and we have some more from bee lover extraordinaire Bridget Strawbridge, star of our latest podcast in the Women of the Land series. We met Charles Massey a few months ago at the Groundswell Conference. He's a sheep farmer in southern Australia. He shared his overview of regenerative farming after talking to over 80 farmers for his PhD and brilliantly links it to human health and climate change. My name's Charlie Massey. Uh, I'm obviously from Australia, southern Australia. We have uh, a bit over 2,000 acres of what you'd call temperate grasslands, so uh, primary um, Agricultural production is uh, merino sheep for super fine wool into the Italian market and we've developed a breed that's animal welfare friendly, uh, no uh, industrial inputs and off native grasslands so it's, it's rather a lovely thing to be doing with, with nice uh, natural fibre. In fact I, I don't call myself a farmer, I call myself a landscape manager because that's what I'm really doing and trying to further heal it. So there's three or four extraordinary lateral innovations in, in new cropping, broadacre and small, all of them built around healthy soil, which is what's been totally ignored um, by the industrial world. And even going back to university after 40 years, I resat through a soil course and they still did not teach soil biology. It was all chemistry and physics. The heart of this whole matter is healthy soil biology. I could give you many stories, but these people... Uh, farm in Western Australia, which is some of the oldest farming soils in the world, 3.8 billion years. If you think about much of North America and Northwest Europe, it's pretty much post-glacial, 10,000 years, full of nutrients, humid. This is Western Australian country, hardly any nutrients left. So almost beach sand they farm on. It's like it's white sand, basically. And in the last 10, 12 years in the Western Australian wheat belt, the largest in Australia, millions of hectares, Virtually all the farmers have gone into huge debt. The banks are really very careful on foreclosing because it could be a domino across millions and millions of hectares. At the same time as that's happened, these people have grown a business from 600 hectares to 15,000 by making profits. And they've made the profits because they've completely moved away from industrial agriculture. So no more herbicides, no more um, synthetic nitrogen or fertiliser, superphosphates and stuff. And what um, they've done is convert the same modern machinery um, but to a biological technique where they wrap uh, worm juice, vermijuice, in combination with compost extract around the seed as they're planting. So normal industrial um, um, foods like wheat and canolas but they've eliminated all industrial inputs and just using biologicals. So their costs of over 90% are gone, and now in the last few years, they've probably been going eight, ten years now. In the last couple of years, their yields now, compared to neighbours across the fence using the same varieties, their yields are uh, better than the traditional industrial by 30% or so, but they don't have the costs. And their, 
their country is just regenerating. We're get, they're getting diversity coming through. They use animals as in the holistic grazing, graze through it because they're integral to the system because of the ruminant bugs in their stomachs that help reseed country after summer, etc. But you need that animal impact to keep the ground covered and to, to cycle the um, humates and other things out of the animal's stomachs and, and keep that green. The secret is having as much green or cover on the land for as much of the year to put the sugars in the soil to drive the whole thing. So it's completely back to front of the industrial model, which is simplification, control, dominance, and just a few inputs going in. It's a classic Mediterranean-type climate. So um, the, in the autumn, uh, the rains will start. Say in our country, if you think six months out of Kilda, so May, expect the rains to go through. So the crops go in then. Um, the rain will stop uh, November, they'll harvest December. So five, about five months of the year it's dry and hot. And so if the soil isn't covered and it hasn't got some green come through so, through more perennials and forbs, um, those soils aren't being maintained and healthy, let alone protected. Because uh, uh, the statistics, uh, the research shows that if you have a 40 degree temperature, which Everyone thought it was only in Australia, but now it's in Europe, you know, 44 the other day in France, and it's coming to the UK. If you have, say, just a 40-degree summer day and you don't have your soil covered, half a centimetre underneath you get this baking effect and you get a 65-degree centigrade temperature. And so all the soil biology, uh, it, it can't stand that. So it's sort of just basic. Cover the soil, hopefully have green forbs and perennials pushing the sugars in to maintain the life. And it's, a, it's sort of a, a counterintuitive, but it, it's not really counterintuitive. Mother Nature's had a few million years to get it right, and we tend to think that she's pretty dumb, and let's simplify. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of um, back to square one stuff, thinking uh, through the lens of nature rather than the arrogance of reductionist human science. One of the key organisms in the soil, in a really healthy soil, are the root fungus, what are called microhousal fungi. Um, they're amazing creatures. They have a partnership with plants. The plants will photosynthesize. They leak sugars into the soil or, or uh, exudates, which feeds the fungus. And the, and the, fungus, the fungi have a partnership, symbi symbiotic relationship. Their part of the bargain is to go off and source the nutrients. And a healthy cubic yard of soil, uh, the, these fungi, fungi have microscopic feeding tubes called hyphae. In a healthy cubic yard of, of, of a really healthy soil, there might be 25,000 kilometres of these micronutrients. Now, if you go and spray, aggressively plough, put on poisonous fertilisers, you kill off nearly all that. And you're left with these drug addict plants who are waiting for their drug fix of, of industrial fertilisers. Where's all hugely important uh, nutrients, minerals, micronutrients that we've evolved for over a million years, they're not there. And then we wonder why the wheels are falling off human health and its systems. It's, 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 it's sort of um, so basic um, and yet uh, there's now a huge business behind the whole industrial machine and industrial medicine and industrial foods, industrial fertilisers, industrial chemicals. Uh, it's in denial because there's too much vested interest. The big end of town, the vested interests in the whole industrial system, um, the big food processors who, who are uh, 
processing the hell out of our food so there's nothing much left in it, like your white goods, etc., or the junk food businesses, the big chemical companies, big pharma, all those. It's in their interest to have us on the drug fix chain of, of the industrial world. The latest research from the uh, FAO, the United Nations FAO, shows that 70% of the world's food today comes off peasant farms of two hectares and less or so. And then if you increase uh, the size of that up a little bit more, it's probably 75, 80%. Uh, we're, we're wasting globally another 30% of food. Um, so it's just rubbish. I mean, uh, the, the amount of wasteland now, I mean, you know, the European community's um, subsidisation policies have forced about 30 million hectares to go out of production. There's so much wasteland around. That's without even turning over other green lands around the world. We can feed uh, estimates by scientists who aren't captured by the big end of town and are looking at this seriously independently. We could feed 11 billion tomorrow if we converted across to a truly biological, regenerative, organic agriculture. So it's a complete furphy that's put around by the big end of town. It's, and uh, that's the other exciting component here. We, um, we, c we can feed the world and we can feed them healthily. So when the solutions are there, um, we've got to start adopting them. And that's the exciting thing. And we haven't even got on to um, addressing the earth systems and climate. <laughs> Where I'm based at is still attached as a visiting uh, lecturer at the Australian National University down the corridor of some of uh, the world's leading earth system scientists um, involved in climate. But as I said, there's, there's nine... We, we know our planet is, has been sustained, is being sustained by nine integrated earth systems. It's not just climate, there's also biodiversity, there's land systems, there's the phosphorus-nitrogen cycle, etc., etc. Uh, all of them are destabilised to a major ex extent now. Um, some of them very, very dangerously. Uh, at least three of them were into uncharted territory like climate and biodiversity. No, humans have caused the sixth greatest extinction event ever on Earth, which we're in the middle of now. Uh, and if you look at those nine systems, uh, almost all of them, the single greatest cause or also major factor is industrial agriculture. So the in, in causative terms. So a flip side of that is a new regenerative agriculture that heals rather than damages can have a huge impact. And, and one of the leaders, just looking, if we're just going to address climate, uh, is Paul Hawken. He's, for the last three or more decades, been one of the world leaders in social and environmental change, as you know. Uh, books like um, Blessed Unrest, the Ecology of Commerce and stuff. And about 15 years ago, he got sick of asking climate scientists, OK, it doesn't look good, what do we do? And um, most of them said, well, I don't know, that's not my field, I'm crunching the numbers. So Paul said, well, you know, to hell with it. So he went and got 80 leading scientists and analysts. Let's look at the 100 best methods to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere or stop it going up. And they've crunched 80 of those methods in, in, in uh, you know, vig rigorous detail. Published a book a couple of years ago called Drawdown. And I've got to know Paul and working with him. And I said, Paul, I looked at the numbers. Um, Fantastic work. Uh, in the top 30 or more, there's seven or eight regenerative agricultural approaches, you know, like silvopastoral systems, um, ecological grazing, organic agriculture, etc. They're all doing the same thing, healing those, earth, those landscape systems. Let's just call them regen ag, because basically they're all the same variant. What are the numbers telling us? When we looked at the numbers, regenerative agriculture is number one by nearly two and a half times 
the next best method in pulling down carbon and putting it away in the soil and stopping it. So that's why I, I think this is such an important story. We have the best solutions to the threat to the earth systems and we have the best solutions to the human health crisis. And uh, if that's not a hell of a story, I don't know. And so uh, the average person in the city can get out and start growing organic veggies or support farmers who are growing their regenerative healthy food and buy fibre like good, you know, good wool or something. Um, and the farmers can, and we now know it's profitable to start switching. We have the techniques for both broadacre agriculture and grazing. So this is one hell of a story. <laughs> There's been a huge amount of work looking at what are called complex adaptive systems. Now, I had to teach master's students, I had to get my head around it. There's about 12 traits, which I won't go into. But it's, it's basically a, a complex adaptive system. It could be the earth itself, those nine systems organising themselves to sustain the unique conditions, it could be a catchment, it could be a farm. It's a, any complex system that is constantly acting and interacting uh, and to maintain a state. Now, one of the key traits that really hit me between the eyes is that when disturbed or inputs come in or what, uh, and if left to its own um, potential, these systems will self-organise back to a state of health. It may not be the same where it was, but there's capacity to self-organising using all the different capacities within it to a more stable, healthy state of equilibrium or whatever you want to call it. And that idea of self-organisation is really what's behind regenerative agriculture. It's, it's farmers starting to do things in a healthy function that enables nature and her ancient systems that are long co-evolved to self-organise themselves back to a higher, better state. In resilience terms, there's a whole theory now on, on resilience of systems and it's, it's getting energy or whatever into the system to kick it back to a healthier state of function and regenerate. And if you look at the Latin roots of regenerate, uh, regeneratus, it's, it's got strong ethical overtones of improvement, etc. So it's a far better word than sustainable, I believe, because sustainable is so overused. It can mean marking time, treading water. I think this is open-ended, absolutely open-ended, and a healthy open-endedness where humans can play a role by doing the right thing, injecting energy or inputs, but enabling nature to do the work. So it's, it's a really an exciting concept. Uh, small farms uh, are more in model with um, diversity of ecosystems, uh, and, and uh, the small farmer is he who walks the paddock by day, knows his farm intimately and reacts to it rather than uh, some of the big industrial scale model farms. Now that you can have these big farms, we do in grazing situation, but the farmer is still intimately involved. Uh, and I think, um, as Schumacher once said, small is beautiful. I, I think there's a role, like any diverse ecosystem, we need all, all types, but the idea that we have to get bigger uh, is, is to me an anathema. I don't think that's necessarily a measure of excellence here. It's, it's diversity and small farms are absolutely hugely important because um, you know, it means family farming, it means diversity, it means intimate control. You know, the old saying of the oxen groweth fat under the eye or the footsteps of the master, it's, it's so true. Uh, once you start getting too big in corporate structures, that intimate connection with the land disappears and it doesn't work as well. Earlier this year, I spent a day at the Bow House, 
a production space and marketplace on the Balkaski estate in the East Nuke of Fife. The East Nuke is a coastal area known for its picturesque fishing villages and fertile soils. Talking to people that day, there was a recurring theme. Despite the obvious abundance of the area, it's frustratingly difficult to directly access local food. The Bowhouse aims to act as that missing link in the chain by connecting small-scale growers and producers with shoppers and restaurants. We'll soon be releasing a short all about the Bowhouse and its efforts to rejuvenate the local food system in the East Nuke. In the meantime, here's a conversation I had that day with Jason Biles, who sets up his stall at the Bowhouse during its monthly market weekends. Jason runs East Nuke Seaweed, whose aim is to excite, educate and empower people to reduce their environmental impact by eating wild, locally produced and seasonal food. He took me on a walk to the local beach, which was just a stone's throw, or maybe a pebble's throw, from the bowhouse. Not everyone knows you can eat a lot of parts of the hawthorn. Back in the days, apparently, traditionally, uh, it was a, an important little food source for, for school kids. You know, because they're smaller, so the little berries, you know, they're like a mini apple, and that, apparently they'd forage those on the way home. And uh, they used to traditionally call it um, cheese and crackers. So the, so the berry was the cheese, and the leaf was the cracker, and they'd wrap them up. Well, I actually read about that in New Zealand before I came to Scotland. And then we came over, and here I was eating leaves off the hawthorn, thinking, oh, everyone did it. <laughs> and everyone thought I was crazy. You know, because, uh, you know, that's sort of the, some of this lost knowledge that, you know, people aren't doing it anymore in the same way, so. It's only been a very, very short time in, in uh, the history of the planet and the history of man that we've, that, we've, that we've not been doing that stuff. You know, so I think it's quite natural for people. And also the more disconnected that we've, that we've become from nature, you know, we're getting all those symptoms of it. You know, you're getting depression and loneliness, all this stuff, you know, so people are really looking to reconnect, you know, and that's a good way to do it is through your food because it's something that we have to do, you know, and I think it's important that people don't look at food as just a way to fuel the vehicle but look at it as a way to actually excite ourselves and each other and, you know, and and really see it as, as, um, you know, a spiritual thing, you know, not just a way to, to power you through your day. When I first brought seaweed into the house, the kids turned up their nose and they were like, seaweed? But now, actually, the youngest one especially, she's like, Dad, where's the seaweed? And piling it on everything. You know, they actually now got to slow it down. So, oh, just a little bit less, Nadia, because, um, you know, I want some. <laughs> Here we are. So that's quite a quick little walk. Nice walk. Already here, you can see why the East Nuke is really good for seaweed because you get such a big tidal range. So, you know, all those rocks, and another, probably not even another hour, most of these rocks will all be covered up. You know, water will be right up here. For me, actually, part of the magic of actually being out there in that environment is that you're walking around on land that only gets exposed, you know, maybe four or five times a year, some of these on the super big tides. And also, there may have not been humans walking out here for... 10,000 years and maybe the last time a human was walking out there was uh, before the last ice age you know so 
that alone, you know, for me is part of the magic. Do you want to head down to the yeah, coast for a wee look? On land, you know, the, the stalk of a plant, for seaweed, we call it a stipe. So at the end of the stipe, you've got the holdfast that attaches itself to the rocks or maybe buries itself in the sand. The way to harvest that would be to cut it up there. And that still leaves some leaf on there and that'll continue to grow. And, and certain species, like, I mean, I've been harvesting sea spaghetti this year and actually some of the areas where I've harvested the sea spaghetti go back and you actually notice it's, it's actually growing faster, you know, a bit like land plants. It actually encourages growth, so done in the right way, you can actually do that with, with seaweed as well. You know, different species grow in different areas, but uh, just up here, a little bit further out, and, um, you know, maybe I can, I can run out quickly if you guys don't want to, but we can see there's a bit of pepper dulse growing up there, and uh, that's one of the varieties of seaweed when people try that. It's something they really don't expect. So I can try and get us a little bit of that if you like and then it might be time to head back after that. It was just a just a quick walk today. Sounds perfect. Just like to get the, the levels right, could you just tell me the classic question is always what did you have for breakfast? Okay. Well I had uh, seaweed, <laughs> eggs on toast with seaweed. <laughs> <laughs> on brand. Very yeah. good. Cool, thank you. My name is Jason Bohiles. Um, I'm, I'm originally from New Zealand. I've been in the, in the East Nuke now for uh, three years. I came up here for a commercial seaweed harvest management job. I've now decided to go into business for myself. But for me, my big focus is really about education um, and educating the, you know, the local people of the East Nuke about the abundance that is available right on their back doorstep there. And obviously with that comes uh, educating them about safety and also educating them about sustainability. You know, but for me, a big passion is not only seaweed, it's just, I mean, all wild food in general. You know, and I really think that uh, through eating more wild, seasonal and locally produced food, that we can actually all make a, a reduction in our impacts on, on the planet. I was actually working on the railways in New Zealand, I just sort of stumbled onto that job. I was working with a komatua, which is uh, an elder in, 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 for the Māoris in New Zealand. And this komatua was, was um, into seaweed. So working on the railways there, we got a lot of downtime. We'd spend half our day sort of sitting on the side of the tracks, waiting for trains to go by before we could go to do our work. So we got a lot of time to forage on the coast because the, the, you know, the rail follows the coast there. So that's really all how it all started, that I was um, introduced to seaweed in New Zealand working with this komatua. Years later, I was in Glasgow, and a friend of mine had uh, heard about seaweed harvesting up here in Fife. So I came up and I checked it out, and you know, really it's all gone from there. My first experience in the East Nuke was uh, Ely sunsets, Kingsburn sunrises, and, and the, uh, the heron. Who you know? He was my first resident. I met up here in Fife, and you know the, the heron for me really signifies that space, you know, where earth, sea, and sky all meet. You know, and that's his hunting ground. That's where where they hang out. Uh, you know, so that's really how the heron ended up on my logo because we, we share that space together. You know, and we're all connected. You know, whether whether it be heron or humans, you know, we're all sharing the space. And you know, and we I think we need to remember that that we're all connected. 
you know, it's not about me being down there and maybe chasing the heron off because he's taking my space. You know, we're going to share it together. Unfortunately, the, the company I was working for is no longer operating in this area. So after three years of investment in seaweed in this area, I decided, well, you know, I'll stick with the seaweed. Uh, that's how East Nuke Seaweed was originally born. But for me, it's all about education. So, you know, I, you know, I believe that, that everyone that lives here in the East Nuke, with that total abundance that's on their back doorstep, you know, they should all have the confidence to go and interact with that, you know, and, and, and you know, harvest a bit of their own seaweed. And obviously with encouraging people to go down and forage seaweed, I need to also really be educating people about how to do it in a safe manner, how to do it in a sustainable manner. So really that's what it's about for me, is, is educating the local people about the abundance that's available and, you know, and about safe and sustainable ways to do it. As Jason explains, seaweed has multiple benefits. First of all, it's a kind of a forgotten resource that we have. It's, it's not something that uh, in the UK has traditionally been looked at as a food source, a direct food source. Now, it's always been used here for agriculture, but you know, it's such an amazing uh, plant. You know, it's so packed full of minerals. It's, it's high in magnesium and potassium, which is you know things that are very much lacking in our diet and our soils. You know, and just the fact that it is so abundant out there. You know, in a time when, when our soils are getting such a hard time, here you've got seaweed that doesn't need soil. The other thing is that you know, seaweed does actually have a direct positive impact on our soil. You know, you can just walk down to any beach anywhere in the world and you'll find piles of seaweed rotting away, turning down into soil. You know, and, and highly uh, mineralized soil as well. So, you know, it's a good way to put minerals back into the soil, but we can also directly uh, access that ourselves by eating it. So again, it's just about giving people the confidence to go and try it out, you know, and have a bit of fun with it. I'd like to start supplying a bit of fresh seaweed to local businesses, but again, I'd like to keep it local. I don't see the point going out there and then cutting it sustainably, you know, walking home, and then sending it off somewhere, wrapping it in plastic and sending it away. I, I don't really see the point in that. If you're not in the East Nuke, go and find your own coastline, you know, and you know, start harvesting it locally. You've got the right to roam, so you know anyone can can roam on any land. In, in Scotland and the UK, actually, there can be private ownership of beaches, but you know you can walk on there as long as you're being respectful. If you're thinking of foraging seaweed yourself, make sure to ask the owner of the beach. That might be a local council, the National Trust, or an individual landowner. Jason also points out that if you're harvesting deep in the intertidal zone, you're likely to be on Crown Estate land. Visit thecrownestate.co.uk and search for seaweed to find the information you need. And it's a bit the same as uh, harvesting land plants. If you're harvesting plants on, on land, you shouldn't rip it up from the roots because you've, in effect you've killed the plant and there is regulations against that. Uh, so that's why, you know, if you're taking seaweed, you should leave the whole fast on there and, and leave a certain percentage of the plant behind. You know, then it's still living, it can regrow, you're not, you're not breaking any rules. I mean, the whole ethos behind foraging in the first place is that you take what you need. You know, if you want to take a bit extra for your neighbour because they can't get out, then that's fine. You shouldn't be down there taking away kilos and kilos of it. You know, also you have to be careful of, of things like water quality, all the rest of it. You know, so it does pay to, to do a bit of research. And uh, on my tours, you know, I go into the sustainability, I go into the regulations, and I go into ways that you can find out 
about the water quality and, and places that you can contact to find out. If you're keen to go foraging on your nearest beach, here's a very quick beginner's guide to different seaweeds. You've got three classifications of seaweed. You've got browns, greens and uh, reds. We've just been through winter, so d- during the winter there's actually a couple of really good varieties of seaweed that are available out there. You've got lava, well known down in Wales, that's what they make their lava bread out of, also known as nori in uh, Japan. But that's actually very abundant seaweed in the whole coast uh, of the UK. So that's a really nice one. Uh, the season's over now, unfortunately. But the reason why that's so good is because it grows right through that hunger gap. The best time of year really to harvest that is February. So there's, there's not much else to get. But the interesting thing with seasonal foods with our found is that, like nori, uh, the larva example, it's ready in February, but you can still get it in March. And in March, you start to get the wild garlic coming up. They actually go really well together. You'd almost think that somebody had designed it. When stuff's in season, it tends to go really well with other stuff that's in season. Right now, we've got some Alaria esculanta, or otherwise known as dabble hocks up here. That's another one that's in season right at the moment. It's a long kelp, a brown seaweed. Really nice, but it's a very short season. And of course, if you're, if you're out there going on the low tide to harvest it, it's in season for six weeks, but you've got roughly about three weeks worth of days that you can go out and get it. So, you know, it's quite elusive. So that's something I really like about, about it. Coming into autumn, which really, if you think in terms of the ocean, that's sort of the summer for the ocean, because it's been heating up all, all summer, and then the, the ocean's nice and warm then. So that's, you know, that's actually a time of abundance for, for the ocean. So uh, we've got a nice one that's very popular in, in Ireland, the dulse, and that's red seaweed. Yeah, that's, that's a little of a brief introduction. Pretty much all seaweeds are, are edible as in the fact that they're not toxic for you. So yeah, unlike mushrooms, there's pretty much no toxic seaweeds out there. So you know, I kind of encourage people to head down to the beach and just start munching on any old seaweed and you'll soon know whether it tastes good or not. But you know, you can be confident in the fact to know that you're not going to do yourself any, any damage. Is there yeah? anything else you'd like to say? Any sort of message you'd like to send out? Hi mum. <laughs> no, I, I think just really, you know, uh, I'd, love, I'd love for people to contact me and, and come out on a tour and learn more about you know, what I do and what we can all do together you know, and uh, let's have some fun, let's have fun with it. We're working together with Chelsea Green Publishing to produce the Women of the Land series in which we share the voices of women who are fueled by their connection with the land to build businesses, garner movements and share their stories. Women who are standing up for what they know works crafting a better future for us all. So far in this series, we featured Leah Penniman talking about farming while black, and Alice Percy sharing about happy pigs taste better. The latest installment is with pollinator queen Bridget Strawbridge. Her book, Dancing with Bees, came out on the 5th of September. It's a beautiful journey of awakening through learning about the bees. As a taster of the longer episode, Here's Bridget talking to us about her mum. My mother um, basically went from being disabled to bedridden in in just really under a year and and reached the stage where I wasn't able to care for her, didn't feel able to care for her. So she spent her um, her last seven or eight months in a nursing home. When she reached the stage which many elderly people do. She was terminally ill. She had lots of ailments and a little bit of dementia as well. She reached the stage where she'd stopped reading 
and she'd stopped. She wasn't interested in the news anymore or television. And I was just, I just couldn't think what to do to to, to help her on the days that I couldn't visit her. Uh, she was lonely. She was terribly, terribly lonely. So I had seen on um, a, a Wildlife Trust website, I, I'd read about a project where one of the Wildlife Trusts had put bird tables outside the windows in nursing homes for elderly people. And, and you know, that's a no-brainer. And there are lots of bird tables, but they're very, very often nobody actually fills them up with bird food. So we bought, it's like a bird feeding station with lots of different feeders on it. And we filled it with nuts and sunflower seeds and fat balls, um, you know, everything we could think, think of and put it right outside her window. And we arranged her room so that she, her chair was facing the window and, um, and just thought, oh, please let the birds come and please let her notice them. And they did. Um, and it changed, it changed her end of life. It made her end of life bearable. All of a sudden she became absolutely obsessed. She did become obsessed with the birds. She didn't know what some of them were. Um, she used to describe them to us and we had so many phone calls. She'd she was, she'd, she'd be on the phone if, if she could work out how to use the phone. Sometimes she couldn't, but she'd be on the phone and she didn't even say it was her. She'd, we'd, we'd just pick up the phone and there'd be my mother suddenly describing a bird and we'd, I'd be thinking, gosh, what is it? What is it? Because she wanted to know the name. I, I worked out what most of them were. You know, she, she'd say, it's got a very long tail. So I think, okay, it's a long tail tit. Um, or she knew the robin. She always knew the robin. Um, she knew the blackbirds. Um, and then that there were there was a whole flock of birds that were her favourites and they turned out to be goldfinches and that they, she thought they were like little jewels um, because they're so brightly coloured and and they she chuckled and that they, they were just joyful for her and there was one bird that she didn't she, she described to us as being upside down and we thought because she had a little bit of dementia we thought perhaps she was getting muddled and she got terribly, she actually got quite distressed because we couldn't tell her the name of, of this bird because we hadn't seen it. She kept saying, but it's upside down, it's upside down. And we were there one day um, in her room when this bird came and it flew across from, because her room looked out over a farmyard and this bird flew across and and landed upside down on the nut feeder and to me, it was just, I just straight away knew it was a nut hatch because nut hatches are upside down. So so we, we were straight away able to, to tell her that it was a nut hatch and that was great. She knew that the bird was a nut hatch. Um, but there was another bird as well um, that um, just a few days before she died um, and we'd reached the stage where, because it was May and, and it was a sunny May, it was just last year, and we'd open, she had patio doors, and we had the patio doors wide, wide open. Um, and about three days before she died, when we opened um, the doors, a racing pigeon came, and the racing pigeon came and landed on the patio. Um, and it started to come in to the bedroom as well. Um, and I mean, I think the, the carers would like to have shoot it out because it's probably not very hygienic but when you really are at, at the end of life all you want is just something that's, that's that's good and she chuckled she was really tickled pink to see this 
ridiculous racing pigeon um, in her room and it dropped a feather one day and I gave her the feather. Um, and it, you, you don't really know, when, we knew she was dying at this stage and we knew that um, it was days, maybe weeks if we were lucky, but probably days. She was very, very religious, my mother. Um, she, she's a Roman Catholic and she wasn't at all frightened about dying because she truly, she knew she was going to heaven. Um, so she had this great calmness and um, the, 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 this, this peace about her. And I gave her this feather um, to hold and she held it. Um, and, and we had to make sure that the carers gave it to her when she woke up as well because she, she wanted to keep holding the feather. And my brother, uh, my brother's, um, one of them lived in Dubai and another in Australia. And when my brother from Dubai called her on Skype and we, we would open Skype for her, um, to arrange for her to to listen and she knew us but I asked her to show Peter the the feather I said look show Peter what you've got she was tiny and she held up this feather and um, I'd already told Peter about the pigeon so Peter knew it came from a pigeon and um, and he said oh that's a nice um, nice that so where, where did that come from and we expected her to say from the pigeon um, but but she said um, an angel I think so Somehow she thought the pigeon was an angel and the pigeon stayed actually until, it stayed until the day she died and um, was gone then. So it's a, it, birds, birds made a difference, huge difference to my mum's, yeah, her last, her last months and her last days, her last few days, right up until when she lost consciousness. It was the birds that made a difference to her. As farmers, we can sometimes get caught up in the many things to do. And then you forget to stop and look at all the birds and bees around us. This is a brilliant and poignant reminder of the power of noticing and stopping to just enjoy the natural world around us. Do listen to the full episode, which is on our feed, to learn all about different types of bees, their nests, and where you can spot them. Since reading the book and speaking to Bridget, we've all found ourselves looking and interacting with our flying insect friends in a whole new way. Now for a request. We're really keen to hear what you think about the show and learn more about who you are. So we've created a short survey to help us understand what you like and what you'd like to see more or less of on the programme. It's only gonna take a few minutes and it's pinned on Twitter in the show's episode notes, or you can head to farmerama.co to complete it there. Thanks for listening to Farmerama this month and every month. If you're able to share the show with your farmer and producer friends or anyone you think might be interested, it's really, really appreciated. Farmerama is made by Joe Barrett, Katie Revel, and myself, Abby Rose. This month, with Louis Hudson helping on editing. Community support for the show comes from Hannah Söderland, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, Olivia Oldham, and Mary Hurd. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Toodaloo!